friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First off, we have a review of the physiologically difficult airway. After that, which video laryngoscope is the best scope? Then temperature and heart rate, what's the relation? After that, Canadians winning the decision aid game yet again, this time for TIAs. And then finally, the 10 commandments of emergency medicine. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the splendid Sam Parnell, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Evaluation and Management of the Physiologically Difficult Airway, Consensus Recommendations from the Society of Airway Management out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. As one of the most common procedures performed, tracheal intubation is the focus of a lot of EM research. It's a very important pivot point between, you know, transforming your patient into what is a very different patient when they're intubated. The focus is typically on the anatomically difficult airway, looking into the best blades to use, the positioning, and really just anything that's going to increase or improve your first pass success. Anatomy is just the tip of the iceberg though. Even a grade one intubation can be dangerous, and we call these physiologically difficult intubations. Potential complications range from transient, oxygen, desaturation, and hypotension, to anoxic brain injury and even death. So here we have a set of recommendations for the physiologically difficult airway from the Society of Airway Management, focusing chiefly on critically ill patients seen outside of the operating room, so exactly the kind of patients that you might be intubating. These recommendations came from extensive literature review, a modified Delphi, alongside anonymous surveys to assess the agreement on levels of recommendation. Now then, I'm going to recommend that you read the entire article to really get the full picture out of it, but here are the top 10 recommendations. Number one, pre-oxygenation should be performed using high flow oxygen for at least three minutes or eight vital capacity breaths. Number two, to go along with number one, desaturation is the biggest risk factor for cardiopulmonary arrest. Number three, if the patient has significant shunt physiology or reduced functional residual capacity, be it due to pregnancy, obesity, ARDS, whatever, then pre-oxygenation should be performed with PEEP using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Number four, to help with number three, patients should be oxygenated in an upright position when possible. Now number five, delayed sequence intubation is an option for patients who can't well tolerate pre-oxygenation. And now the rest will focus on hypotension. Number six, risk factors for decompensation include the vascular and cardiac effects of common induction agents that we use, as well as the effects of positive pressure ventilation. Number seven, peri-intubation hypotension is independently associated with poor outcomes, including mortality, length of stay, and end organ injury. Number eight, patients should be screened for being high risk for hemodynamic collapse. Those with a shocker index over 0.7 are at increased risk. Number nine, Fluid-responsive and fluid-tolerant patients should be fluid-resuscitated before intubation, or at least during the intubation. Number 10. When possible, vasopressor infusions should be started before intubation in patients that are not volume-responsive or fluid-tolerant. <sighs> okay, that was quite a bit, but that's all. In a spoonful, you've got a lot more to worry about than just getting that tube in. And now for the second article titled Macintosh Video Laryngoscope for Intubation in the Operating Room, a Comparative Quality Improvement Project, out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. 
There's a lot of data out there that supports the use of video laryngoscopes as first line, and gradually this will probably become standard of care. What the data hasn't been showing us though, is which of the many video laryngoscopes should we be using? Let's find out. This study included almost 600 patients who needed to be intubated in the operating room using one of four single-use video laryngoscopes. Randomization was pragmatic, and the devices were switched between four scheduled time blocks, which were then alternating using one device per block. Each intubation went through a series of steps. All of it was very well protocolized, actually. Step 1. Direct laryngoscopy with the selected video laryngoscope was done, and the operator reported the VIEW's Cormac Lehan score. Step 2. The VIEW was then rated on the screen through the video view. If the score was 1 or 2, then an intubation was attempted. If the score was 3 or 4, then you went on to step 3. If the first attempt at intubation was unsuccessful, then you also moved on to step 3. In step 3, the attending took over and used that same company's hyperangulated blade to rate the view and then intubate. The primary outcome was movement to step 3, so a failed first attempt or a poor view. The four video laryngoscopes that were compared were the McGrath Mac, the CMAC S, the CMAC S PM, and the APA. Performing the best with just 12% progression to step 3 was the McGrath Mac blade, with fewer intubation attempts and better views. Of course, these are not emergency department patients, and user experience is likely to play a large role, but it's still something interesting to hear about. In a spoonful, comparing four different single-use video laryngoscopes, the McGrath Mac Blade had the best direct and indirect glottic visualization, fewer intubation attempts, and reduced the need for progression to a hyperangulated blade. And that brings us to article number three, titled The Relationship Between Heart Rate and Body Temperature in Critically Ill Patients out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. It has long been known that fever is associated with an increase in heart rate, this is classically called Liebermeister's rule. Now, in critically ill populations of patients, there are a lot of different reasons to be tachycardic, so it's nice to know how much can be attributed to their fever and how much is likely coming from something else. This was a retrospective review of data collected from 9,000 patients admitted to an ICU in Denmark over a 13-year period. These patients had simultaneous recordings of their heart rate and temperature. The association is actually a bit different between females and males. Now for males, there was a 7.24 increase in heart rate per degree Celsius. For females, there was an increase of 9.46 beats per minute per degree Celsius. This result stood up well to controlling for other factors, and their model actually showed no significant relationship with age, hemoglobin, magnesium, base excess, or inotropic support. There was a small association with the SOFA score, though. Alright, in a spoonful, there is a linear increase in heart rate associated with elevated temperatures in critically ill patients. For each 1 degree Celsius in body temperature, there was an associated increase in heart rate by 9.46 beats per minute for females and 7.24 beats per minute for males. And following that, we have Article 4, titled Prospective Validation of Canadian TIA Score and Comparison with ABCD2 and ABCD2I for Subsequent Stroke Risk After Transient Ischemic Attack, a multi-center prospective cohort study out of the BMJ. Here we go again about risk assessment tools, and then of course the Canadian underdogs are taking it home for the prize. When determining the disposition of TIA patients, the ABCD2 score has been used, but it has some issues. 
When combined with the presence of infarction on CT or diffusion-weighted imaging, then you have the ABCD2I score. It did a little bit better at predicting short-term stroke risks. Now we have a new contender intent on outperforming the ABCD2 risk scores, and that's the Canadian TIA score. This study used a prospective cohort of 7,600 emergency department patients with TIAs, where the primary outcome was stroke or carotid endarterectomy or carotid stenting within seven days. Using the Canadian TIA risk score, they were found to be able to be separated into three risk groups, either low, medium, or high. The low-risk group ended up having a 0.5% risk of the primary outcome, the medium-risk group had a 2.3% risk, and the high-risk group had a 5.9% risk. Now, if you only look at stroke as an outcome at 7 days, then the numbers became 0.2% risk in low, 1.5% risk for the medium group, and 2.7% risk for the high-risk group. This actually outperforms the ABCD2 scores in terms of overall diagnostic accuracy. A fallback from this study, though, was that the old definition of TIA was used, which means that by today's standards, TIA was really just the emergency department working diagnosis instead of a true TIA diagnosis, because it's not always easy to get an MRI on these patients in a timely fashion. Only 4% of the patients actually received an MRI, which would be necessary to truly diagnose a TIA. This is a weakness, but it's also, you know, fairly realistic for the kinds of patients that you might see. So then, what to do with this information? At a 0.5% risk of stroke for the low-risk group, these patients could probably go home. For the high-risk group, at 2.7% risk of stroke, admission may be reasonable. But the problem is always in the medium-risk group. What do you do with them? In this study, 72% of the cohort actually fell in the medium-risk group. So now it's still a sub 2% risk of stroke by seven days. So it's probably reasonable that these patients could go home on aspirin with close follow-up. But again, this is probably going to be a good opportunity for shared decision-making. In a spoonful, the TIA score can be used to accurately stratify patients as low, medium, or high risk for subsequent stroke within seven days. And that brings us to our last article, which was titled Revisiting the Ten Commandments of Emergency Medicine, a Resident's Perspective, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The original Ten Commandments of Emergency Medicine were actually published 30 years ago by Wren and Slovis. Things change, though. So even though they remained largely the same, there's, you know, still need for a few updates. Here are the Ten Commandments of Emergency Medicine, the modern edition. Number one. Secure the ABCs, but do it carefully. While the ABCs are still, of course, paramount, in 30 years, we've learned a little bit more about finesse. Recall everything that we just said about the physiologically difficult airway. Number two, remember, naloxone, glucose, and thymine. Careful reversal of opioid intoxication can be something of an art. And don't forget point-of-care glucose testing, which could preclude empiric treatment, but in altered and ill patients, you really need to test all of them. And lastly, thiamine deficiency in alcoholics isn't as common as we used to think it was, but it can be present in almost any malnourished population, so keep it in mind. Number three, do a pregnancy test and consider doing POCUS. Every patient should still be tested for pregnancies, especially as the age spectrum of potentially pregnant patients is still growing and growing, and complications along with it. POCUS is a helpful adjunct as well, especially in the unstable patient. Number four, assume the worst. 
This one, guys, hasn't changed in 30 years. This is our job. We're good at it. You have to recognize and identify possible threats. Number five, don't send unstable patients to radiology, but if you do, don't send them alone. Portable scanners and bedside echoes should be the priority, but sometimes the donut of truth is just what you need. That should be after you've resuscitated them as much as possible. If you have to send them, then use the buddy system and don't send them alone. Number six, seek out red flags. It's not enough to just recognize red flags anymore. You need to go looking for them and you need to look hard to be confident that there's nothing there. Like taking a good hard look at that aorta in any elderly man with back pain. Number seven, trust no one, believe nothing, not even your electronic medical record. EMRs have revolutionized how much information about patients that we have available, but false information can be propagated just as easily. Verify information with patients and their families. Number eight, learn from your mistakes. To err is human. There's not going to be any getting around that. But then to improve and not to stigmatize mistakes, that is divine. Number nine, do unto others as you would your family, and that includes culturally different families as well. Keep an open mind. Not every patient thinks the way that you do. Sometimes that will make you uncomfortable, but be proud of what you do and treat people in a way that would make you and your family proud. Number 10, when in doubt, err on the side of the patient. Always try to advocate for your patients. Patients coming through the emergency department aren't necessarily going to have anyone else on their side, so you might be the only person available to advocate for them. (sighs) And that's all, folks. That's it. Let's do a quick wrap-up of everything that we learned. First off, we looked at the physiologically difficult airway, and we know to pre-oxygenate, resuscitate, and screen for fragile patients prior to intubation. After that, not only is video laryngoscopy recommended, but more specifically, it might be best to use the McGrath-Mac blade. Then, for each degree Celsius of increase in temperature, females increase their heart rate by about 10, and males by about 7. After that, fourth, the Canadian TIA score is prospectively validated and ready for clinical use. And then finally, we did a quick update of the 10 commandments of emergency medicine. Now you've already earned them and we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website, journalfeed.org. There you can also find links to all the articles we've summarized. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.